0: This is germ warfare—the battle of ideas. I I think today's discussion is a little bit of a carryover from a previous conversation that we had about a month ago regarding breaking free of anti-China psyops. Some of the elements of how China kicked out George Soros back in the nineteen eighties—you know, Russia took them a lot longer. Russia got annihilated in the nineteen nineties under what's today known as Perestroika. Or Operation Hammer that we had also discussed, the liberalization, privatization of the entire Russian economy and the creation of a new class, a new breed of Russian oligarchs that are really, were just selected because they were willing puppets, um, little sociopaths who were more than happy to serve the interests of the city of London, of Wall Street, of the IMF as part of a takedown of, the, of essentially Russian civilization as we know it and the creation of a new Uh, technocratic feudal structure that was designed originally in the 1990s when you listen to people like Zbigniew Brzezinski. The idea was to always balkanize all of Russia, not just the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact territories, but all of the the Russian state as we know it into effectively 13 or 14 micro micro federations that would all be dominated by one or another ethno-national prejudice group that would always be under a state of constant turmoil, constant divide to conquer, and thus better looted as a slave colony the way Hitler had wanted to use Russia back in the 1940s as an extraction zone um, governed by local managers, you know, Neo-Trotskyites, for example, that wanted to kill Stalin and bring back the Trotsky uh, deep state in Russia that was working very closely with the Japanese fascist British. French uh French and especially German uh Nazi fascists that was always the agenda back then it didn't work out back in the 30s and 40s when it was originally attempted it didn't work in the 20s when Trotsky was managing the uh, the liberalization of the Russian economy under uh, <laughs> with the help of people like Armand Hammer the original the original hammer around which the operation hammer under George Bush senior was na- was was given the name in the 1990s the you know so that didn't work but in China there was a pushback in the 80s against this whole operation. It didn't go the way of Russia. So we only scratched the surface. And I know um, you wanted to really tackle the question of Tiananmen Square because that that does play a big role. And today we are coming, we're a few days away from the anniversary of the Tiananmen Square uh, events. I'll say events because most people refer to it as as a massacre where thousands and thousands of innocent, peaceful student protesters were, we are told, uh, killed by the big bad Chinese Communist Party on June 4th. All they wanted was liberty. Give me liberty or give me death, American flag, Statue of Liberty. All of these things were in Tiananmen Square in Beijing. Between April um, and June of 1989, I make the point, and and many authors who I'm gonna be citing today um, have made the point pretty conclusively, especially using material from from WikiLeaks that that went public a decade ago, never got much circulation by mainstream press, that it was that this is a hoax. There was never such a thing as a Tiananmen Square massacre. What it was, on deeper analysis and with an appreciation for global oligarchical operations and the fight to kick out George Soros that happened in the wake of this from China, is that it was more like a, uh, a Maidan, the, the thing that we saw in Ukraine that utilized violent provocateurs, killing both police as well as uh, useful idiot protesters who didn't know why they were being corralled to demand changes in the government in Ukraine and Kiev in 2013 and 14. They didn't realize how they were being used and this is very similar as a process to what we saw then. So I'm gonna do a share screen. So as, as you see there is a quick little screenshot of one of the scenes, give me liberty or give me death. Uh, a statement directly referencing the American Revolution, uh, right, behind, uh, right in front behind that is Chairman Mao in Tiananmen Square. This is one of the my most iconic images that we we're given. Uh, you know, the, the brave, freedom-loving student staring down the, the big bad tankers who were out killing student protesters. What a brave and courageous guy who probably died. I always thought he died up until I started researching this thing. I actually, in my memory, it was burnt into my head that he had died as, as had thousands of others. Uh, the reality is people could watch the video clips. He literally walks onto the uh, – this this fellow walking with his groceries, steps onto the, the tank, looks around for about three seconds, then walks down and walks away. That's that's literally what happened. There was, <laughs> that, that's the video. Um, so just some some samples of Modern Color Revolutions just to remind people how today's – Asymmetrical warfare, uh, how it operates, what are the tactics of regime change, hard and soft alike? We know what the hard, hard regime change we know what that looks like. We saw it in the form of Iraq, of Afghanistan. We saw it in Libya with the direct, you know, humanitarian bombing campaigns that were um, designed to essentially democracy build. You know, that's what George Bush and, and Dick Cheney called that process: democracy building, nation building. There there is another soft kind deployed increasingly with some modern techniques during the the Cold War in the 60s and especially in the 70s that that took on a new character coming out of the CIA. And we saw manifestations in what Victoria Newland called one of the greatest moments of U.S. foreign policy, you know, when she uh, Mm. celebrated U.S. government spending five billion dollars through the National Endowment for Democracy to uh, prepare the groundwork for regime change in Ukraine under what some call the uh, Revolution of Dignity, but really this was something that's been proven to have been a violent operation that utilized a lot of Nazis, Nazi paramilitary groups, other um, uh, mercenaries brought in. Studies have been done showcasing the triangulation of mercenaries stationed as snipers in a certain building um, above the Maidan that were shooting both cops and uh, protesters. We saw another... Attempt, but a failure of an attempt. I was actually there at a certain point for a conference in 2019 September at the height of the Hong Kong protests. Yet another uh, CIA National Endowment for Democracy operation utilizing a lot of dumb, fanatical, romantic young people radicalized in their universities. We saw this come home to roost in the United States in the course of the, the BLM Black Lives uh, Black Lives Matter riots, funded again by George Soros and uh, protected by intelligence agencies embedded within the USA itself. Antifa, mm-hmm. anti-fascist movements, again funded by Soros and uh, protected by U.S. intelligence, used a lot of, a lot of the exact same techniques. Um, and again, one of the characteristics that one finds in, in any color revolution tends to be, in this case, we see here, British and American flags at the Maidan. Here again, American flags, more British flags of... Useful idiot Hong Kongers clambering away in 19, 2019 and earlier 2015 when they did this the first time, demanding uh, a, re- a restoration of the freedoms they once enjoyed under British rule, which, by the way, never had democracy in Hong Kong, had had examples in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s where the British had massacred mm. um, civilians in Hong Kong demanding freedom. The whole thing itself. Why were the British there? It was because they needed Hong Kong as the basis of an international opium war to uh, destroy China intellectually, culturally, spiritually, and HSBC, the drug bank uh, that has been caught laundering money, uh, drug money in the in the hundreds of billions for decades, was caught red-handed and was found guilty. Paid off a few billion dollars to settle the uh, the the crime that they did, and still to this very day controls a third of the Hong Kong money. Another. Money laundering bank that's part of the London complex is uh, Standard and Charters, which also manages a big chunk of the Hong Kong uh, monetary system. So that's even to this very day something.
1: Sorry, I'm just going to jump in just for a moment. Notice how they are wearing masks. This is now 2019.
0: Yeah, that's interesting, eh? That's it. I mean, the, the 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 mask wearing culture in China was always kind of there because of the pollution issues. And But in this case, this was probably because they didn't want people to see their faces because a lot of these student protesters were burning people alive. Um, there were many deaths um, that had happened during that time. Uh, it, it got violent and, and they were really trying to provoke, just like in the Ukraine situation or Georgia, like in this case, the technique is to provoke the authorities to use violence. That's the that's always been the idea to then justify an acceleration um, mm. of essentially regime change and use that really as propaganda in the eyes of the international community that would then be induced to clamor and champion uh, foreign militarists that would go in and help a, a protest movement out, as we saw with Libya, um, in overthrowing an undesired government which might be not willing to sabot- sabotage their, their sovereignty on some altar of globalism. So that was done in 2003, and again, we see a more recent 2023 resparking of that uh, model of color revolution now in Georgia, now that Georgia is trying to push back a little bit against these CIA front groups and Soros front groups by demanding that these, that every for agency trying to push social change registers as, or makes um, transparent their foreign funding, which there was never a law on such a thing in Georgia. So now there's obviously a, a reawakening of, the, the mili- of these uh, rabble rousers, <clears throat> Hungary has something similar uh, going on right now, which is uh, concerning. Uh, this, Taiwan also suffered their own regime change operation in 2014 when the National Endowment for Democracy funded a slightly more peaceful, but still, I mean, they, they stormed the Capitol building, took over. The, on the left is a picture of the Sunflower Movement youth who took control of the Taiwanese parliament building, demanding an end to any economic treaties that were being signed on uh, with mainland China. And um, with this movement came the creation of a pro-U.S. military, military well, <laughs> a pro-U.S. regime that saw the U.S. as supporters of separatism um, in Taiwan, which is currently being used as a Ukraine of the Pacific today against China. So that's just a few samples of some of what uh, we know color revolutions have done in recent years. There's a lot more examples I didn't throw in here, but just to give people a flavor of what they're going to see with Tiananmen Square. I mentioned National Endowment for Democracy. I mentioned Soros' Open Society Foundations. So just quickly, um, what are these Samuel P. Huntington to understand? Even though NED was created officially in, in 1983 and Open Society Foundation in 1979, the roots of this go back, I think a good starting point is the 1975 Trilateral Commission Task Force on the Governability of Democracies, overseen by uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski. And uh, this particular draft report presented in Kyoto, Japan, by the, at the Trilateral Commission Summit there, mm. um, was drafted by Samuel P. Huntington. Um, Both of whom were trilateral commission members, very high level, both of whom were globalists calling for a post-nation-state world order under a technocratic scientific managerial class. Both of them are on record saying so, along with David Rockefeller and Kissinger, two other leading figures who created the, the trilateral commission. Um, now, in this 1975 report, Huntington writes, one might consider means of securing support and resources from foundations, business corporations, labor unions, political parties, civic associations, and where possible and appropriate governmental agencies for the creation of an institute for the strengthening of democratic institutions. Sounds all well and good. Okay, but why 75? Well, this is the same year that the church committee has occurred, and that also goes with a uh, another committee on assassinations by the U.S. government, um, which put to light a lot of the shadowy dealings of the CIA and FBI, but especially the CIA in overthrowing governments throughout the uh, the nineteen fifties and sixties, assassinating leaders both at home and abroad, um, MKUltra, Project Mockingbird, uh, pro infiltration of uh, domestic civil rights and, and anti imperial organizations. All of this was made public, and it was somewhat embarrassing for the CIA at the time, which needed to rebrand their techniques and essentially do the exact same thing that they had been doing uh, that ever since the end of World War II, but but rebranded under something that might look a little bit more pretty for the surface, uh, on the surface. So this was the, uh, the mandate put forth that created what was known first as the American Freedom Foundation. Um, that was... Created by Freedom House, the, the head of Freedom House and the head of the RNC and DNC um, in 1979 as the first step in creating this umbrella group that would un- unite civil civil society, uh, union groups, some governmental uh, money as well. U.S. aid was going to play a big role in that. Um, same year, 1979, Open Society Foundation created around the same month even. Um, 1983 was the official act passed by Reagan. Um, National Endowment for Democracy, which involved a first step of creating a $31 million of funding via these organizations that I list here. U.S. Chamber of Commerce's Center for Private Enterprise, the International Republican Institute, International Democratic Institute, Freedom House, AFL-CIO, Free Trade Union Institute. And as pointed out by a former interim head of the, uh, of the NED in 1991, David Ignatius, um, in a in an interview he stated a lot of what we do today was done covertly 25 years ago by the CIA so this this literally even from those who, who were operators controllers of this it was openly acknowledged to be doing the exact same thing that the CIA was doing so one of the um, the ideologi- the one of the core um, managerial instruments for this, as well as the intellectual blueprints that were used to uh, usher in this new age of uh, regime change, was coordinated through what was known as the Center for International Affairs at Harvard University, otherwise known um, even at the time in the 1960s when it was created as the CIA of Harvard. Henry Kissinger taught there. That's where in that function, Henry Kissinger uh, trained a young uh, sociopathic uh, peon named Klaus Schwab, who was studying there at the time, who went on to be employed to be a cardboard cutout for a, a certain organization in 1971 that I think viewers are aware of. Mm. Um, the, the other founders, not only were, was Henry Kissinger a co-founder and a teacher at this, while he was also a director at the Rockefeller Brothers, or um, he was a um, yeah, director at the Rockefeller uh, Foundation, you had people like uh, McGeorge Bundy, the uh, the head of the Ford Foundation, who also co-founded and managed this. James Perkins, a, a, a man who would go on to become director of the CIA. We know of Zbigniew Brzezinski, Samuel P. Huntington, Dean Rusk, a major uh, handler of uh, – of well, he was the president. Dean Rusk was not only a Rhodes Scholar from Oxford, a president of the, the Rockefeller Foundation. He also managed a big chunk of the Vietnam War and earlier um, – uh, Korean Wars as the U.S. was turned from being a pro-nation state, pro-freedom, anti-imperial society into a branch of the British Empire under the Five Eyes. So that's what this was. It's always the same names. Yeah. Yeah. There's very few who are, I think, given um, who are vetted to have the the permission to see what the whole picture is. Most people are, are assigned a very compartmentalized task as a peon, as as an instrument within the machine. And so when you get a Kissinger or a McGeorge Bundy, they're allowed to see how the game is played, but there's very few in that executive uh, grouping of the nerve centers. I think Gene Sharp is one of those people who was granted uh, the right to see what the whole is doing as well. He also worked at the Center for International Affairs. Gene Sharp also coordinated a sub-organization called the Albert Einstein Institute, both of which, including the the Harvard CIA, were coordinated from the um, as I mentioned here, is an outgrowth of the Office of the Chief of Psychological Warfare and Special Operations at the CIA. Same organization, that same part of the CIA that was running and managing uh, MKUltra, as well as the entire UFO cult, for that matter, too, the entire growth of UFO, <laughs> the UFO cult since the 50s, run and managed by the same people promoting the drug culture that was then normalized under the hippies. Not a, not two separate things. That's, that's one operation. Um, so Gene Sharp He's sort of a guru. His handbooks are used to train regime change operatives under color revolutions everywhere in the world uh, today. And for the past 40 years, we're going to see more of him. He was also a figure who was on the ground at Tiananmen Square for nine days during the actual protest itself. I have mentioned Henry Kissinger. So what's the I love context. People often get so sucked into the mechanics of things and they start looking myopically. At, um, at the machinery of conspiracies that they very often lose sight of the whole picture. And I think context is everything. So just to avoid falling into that trap today, I think it's, it's, it's useful to just review 1974. Henry Kissinger's National Security Study Memorandum 200 kind of laid out and it was classified and declassified only in 1991. Um, it laid out, I think, the general core agenda or or the operating system that was being brought online and taking over the United States and the Western world over the dead bodies of John F. Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy, Martin Luther King, and many others. And so he says in this, this is what brings on the idea of making the priority for U.S. foreign policy to be based upon getting undermining the existence of the sovereign nation state system and pushing a population reduction strategy instead of pro-development, which had formerly been the ethos for most of the moral U.S. citizens and even policymakers in many ways, uh, was to always look to see how we could help Africa, help help colonialized oppressed people develop full spectrum economies, access the most advanced technology and do it themselves. That was always part of what made America good. So Kissinger lays out and I should say, Sir Henry Kissinger, because he was knighted by the Queen um, <laughs> twenty-five years later. That's an important point. He says here: uh, Is the U.S. prepared to accept food rationing to help people who cannot and will not control their population growth? The U.S. economy will require large and increasing amounts of minerals from abroad, especially from less developed countries. The fact ge- that that fact gives the U.S. enhanced interest in the political economic and social stability of the supplying countries. Wherever a lessening of population pressures through reduced birth rates can increase the prospects for such stability, population policy becomes relevant to resource supplies and to the economic interests of the United States. Although population pressure is obviously not the only factor involved, these types of frustrations are much less likely under conditions of slow or zero population growth. He, he names 14 target countries, Mexico, Ethiopia, um, Egypt, uh, Sri Lanka on, on his list of target countries that had been s- silly enough to want modernization and development back, back when he was writing, but must learn by force even that uh, they must their priority must be on reducing on zero population growth or even negative population growth in order to access the resources under their soil, which is in the strategic interest of the United States. Um, this is known as Malthusianism. So just quick, the ideology of empire is and always has been even before Malthus himself was born um, and became a, a, an agent of the British East India Company. It was always control people and control the ideas that you permit for people to have in order to keep people voluntarily or forcefully, if, if, if possible, um, subject to their shackles as talking uh, cattle. So on the on the left is the innovation by Thomas Malthus that made for the scientific management of society uh, a thing of empire, where uh, he put forth a formula saying that human population will always grow geometrically, which is the curve on the right, uh, the the curve on the on the on the on the left side that says population. As that as that population increases, there is scarcity. There's going to be less food to go around. There's going to be more war, more famine, more death, and so enlightened elites must always use these tools of wars and famine and starvation and disease in order to induce the the population to always be much lower than the resources that are available and must be controlled by that same elite. This was revived under what's known as the Club of Rome, an an organization very closely uh, tied to David Rockefeller's Trilateral Commission and the World Economic Forum that produced a report called the Limits to Growth that revived the Malthusian um, mathematical formula for controlling population, added a few more variables with the 1970s computing technology and used that as a way to sort of shape international policy. And Kissinger was a major, major advocate for this, uh, as was Klaus Schwab, who provided a venue at at Davos in 73 to uh, make this popular internationally. The Chinese are attacked often for having a one-child policy which we are told is at the basis of what the, the the empire wants to do for everybody is you know is what China did to itself in the 1970s. That was actually not a Chinese policy. Kissinger was China's China's overpopulation issues were always a target by Kissinger, which is when which was in Kissinger's mind when he organized the opening up of China. And the idea was to create a slave society whereby China would be the slave cheap labor exporter for the rest of the world, and the rest of the world, or the, the, the first world, so-called, was going to become the, um, the consumer society that would no longer produce what it once produced for itself. And that way, China would stay poor, too poor to buy their own cheap goods. We would stay too decadent and stupid and, and useless to be able to produce for ourselves. And the only people who would benefit were those who Kissinger worked for at the Bilderberg Group. Keep in mind, Kissinger was on the steering committee of the Bilderberger group, which I believe he still is to this very day. So <clears throat> that's the, the the logic of closed systems as opposed to open systems. Closed systems create scarcity and, and forbey the growth of any new discoveries, new inventions that would leap leap beyond the limits to growth. The, that's the that's the closed system forces the, those constraints. The open system, which was expressed by the best of humanity, John F. Kennedy, Lincoln, and and so many other leaders, were always thinking about how do we leap above the limits to growth? How do we in, encourage more creative discoveries that are then translated into new technologies that create new resources that, that uplift people from um, low to high standards of living? So, who are the the, the main characters in China? So, as China's oh I it's the limits to growth the club of rome that that goes to china they th- this their mathematical models are what are brought into china as a precondition for china getting access to the vital factories and other industrial needs that china needs because they were, they were essentially a third world country at you know in the 1950s and, and in the 60s under the cultural revolution of the gang of four they really self-mutilated um, mutilated quite badly there was a lot of uh, reconstruction that needed to be done and that required industrial power they didn't have it so the chinese there's a fight over how what would it look like so obviously um we had the kissinger ideology of the trilateral commission slave society forever when this was brought to china and the one child policy was brought in it wasn't just that but there was a broader 1980s massive liberalization that also came in and you had people like milton friedman who made many many tours of china in the 1980s Uh, There you have uh, Alvin Toffler, we're going to see more of him, a major transhumanist futurist who also made many tours of China working with CIA operatives who who were very high level inside of the Chinese uh, Communist Party. Um, Soros opened up several uh, front groups inside of China in the 1980s too, coordinating very closely with the CIA. This figure is going to play an important part of the Tiananmen Square story. And uh, Zhao Ziyang, who you and I have spoken briefly about in the past, is there with uh, Ronald Reagan. He was known as the Gorbachev of China, the, the great liberalizer. Um, Milton Friedman and and Toffler and and many others saw him as Soros, saw him as the, uh, the man who was going to be, who needed to become... The, uh, the new Pinochet, keep in mind, you know, when Pinochet was put in power in Chile in the 1970s by, uh, by Kissinger after the overthrow of Salvador Allende, what, what did Chile, what did Pinochet, the dictator, do? He liberalized the economy, right? He, yes, he also killed thousands and thousands of resistance fighters and intellectuals, but he also liberalized and privatized the, the Chilean economy and opened up the free markets, got rid of all protectionism. And that's really what they wanted in the case of China, a privatization, just like they were preparing in the case of Russia. So Zhao Jiang was premier from 1980 to 87, and from 87 to 89, he was the general secretary of the Chinese Communist Party. A lot of Chinese don't like talking about him because it's a, a bit of an embarrassment to see to what degree the CIA and Soros had control of China in the 1980s. One of the things that Zhao Ziyang said, and, I, and this is in my new report with my uh, that I co-wrote with my wife, "Breaking Free of Anti-China Psyops." Zhao Jiang in 19. 19- Uh, October 9th, 1983. I believe this was at a trilateral commission summit in Beijing, overseen by David Rockefeller. Um, He writes, whether we call it the fourth industrial revolution or call it the third wave, these writers, and here he's referring to uh, Alvin Toffler and and the writers who were then promoting the fourth industrial revolution around uh, Klaus Schwab, all believe that Western countries in the 1950s and 60s reached a high degree of industrialization and are now moving to an information society. At the end of this century and at the beginning of the next century, or within a few decades, there will be a new kind of situation in which breakthroughs in new technology that are happening now or will happen soon will be used for production and for society. For us and for the future of the four modernizations, this is both an opportunity and a challenge." (laughs) Okay, so it sounds kind of nice on the surface. Okay, technology, new advanced technologies being used for uh, the benefit of humanity, all sounds good. But what is this? What is he actually talking about? Well, in this case, he's representing one of two uh, per, uh, perspectives of what the four modernizations should be. The There was a, and luckily, Zhao Jiang, I'll, I'll, I'll blow a bit of the punchline, ends up in prison when the uh, Maidan of 1989 fails. Uh, he ends up in, in house arrest, I should say. And the, the opposing faction around Deng Xiaoping, who had put the Gang of Four in prison, um, had a had their idea of the four modernizations dominate and, victor- and, and become victorious, which is what has shaped Chinese um, thinking in terms of how to invest in infrastructure, science, technology uh, and beyond over the past 25 or 30 years. At the time, though, there was still a dispute over whether it would be based upon using things like bioengineering of human babies, um, information tech along the lines of what we see from the US military industrial complex and big tech today. Um, and effectively, um, a technocratic management of using technology in order to manage the human herd. That was another view of the four modernizations. That's the side that Zhao Ziyang was trying to advance and, and take, o- take over through what's known as the third wave. So Alvin Toffler, he was really big in China. He was actually really big in the United States, too. The, the, a, a big chunk of the neoconservative movement of the 1970s. Um, Newt Gingrich was a big advocate and follower of Toffler. Um, Toffler himself was very, very closely tied to Tavistock and its branch outlets in Stanford um, in America in the 1960s. Toffler laid it out in his third wave in 1978, where he said this era is now screeching to a halt, meaning the, n- the, the industrial national, nation, national era. He said industrial civilization is now in a state of terminal crisis. And a new, radically different civilization is emerging to take its place on the world stage. We are swiftly entering a new, more sophisticated state of evolutionary development based on far more advanced, yet more appropriate technologies than any known so far. Of course, windmills, solar panels, appropriate technologies. This leap to a new phase of history is bringing with it new energy patterns, new geopolitical arrangements, new social institutions, new communications and information networks, new belief systems, symbols, and cultural assumptions. Thus, it must generate wholly new political structures and processes. In this sense, the breakdown of government as we have known it, which is to say representative government, is chiefly a consequence of obsolescence. So basically saying, representative Republican forms of government are outdated, no longer apply to the modern age. That breakdown has to happen. Simply put the political technology of the industrial age is no longer appropriate technology for the new civilization taking form around us. Our politics are obsolete. Hubris hubris. But I mean, this is the thing. These guys are, that's how mm-hmm. they talk. They're, they act like it's a, an evolutionary, an evolutionary force of nature, which there are instruments of. There's no point resisting. Just like Malta said, it's, it's overpopulation is a force of nature. You, you can't really escape it by encouraging new discoveries. All you can do is adapt. Or the social Darwinists or eugenicists. All you can do is have a, a, an Ubermensch class of managers, of, of scientific engineers who can manage the depopulated human cattle, uh, the useless eaters, using whatever technology we have available to do that. Very, very arrogant, and it completely uh, betrays the fact that these guys are sociopathic, sick death cultists who actually misanthropically hate human beings for what we actually do when we're in a loving, rational phase, a state of mature being, which is make discoveries, love each other, find peaceful solutions to problems. That's the human way. These people try to say, no, human beings are just a beast against beast. And thus, because we live in a human zoo of each against all in a Hobbesian frenzy, all we can do is have a zookeeper. (laughs) <laughs> the leviathan right that can impose mm. a will of order from above bullshit so first wave in the in the this transhumanist uh formula first wave of human civilization was agricultural feudal pre-national second wave under the the toffler transhuman um, formula was industrial democratic national came out in the, in the wake of the renaissance but now the new third wave that we're entering into is a is a is a information society a, a technocratic feudal post-nation-state society that's that's the idea and you can see it in the writings of Zbigniew Brzezinski of Kissinger of, of, of Huntington all of them they all think the same stupid way all right so let's now restore return back to uh, the ground the ground of China in, in 1989 so I mentioned before WikiLeaks uh, 2011 there was a batch of WikiLeaks documents utilizing cables that had been classified by the US Embassy in Beijing during the unfolding of the events between April and especially June of 1989. That revealed that indeed, even the US officials on the ground acknowledged through eyewitness accounts and other, other things that there was actually never a, a massacre. There was no violent crackdown by the Chinese government against the peaceful protesters. It just didn't happen. What you instead have is an admission um, that cites interviews by the Chilean embassy on the ground, the ambassador and the diplomats. There were several diplomats on the ground at Tiananmen Square during um, the worst of it, as we are told, who acknowledged actually that there was a peace negotiation between the soldiers and the student protest leaders to leave peacefully, which they did. And that's acknowledged by those who were witnessing it on the ground and cited by the U.S. officials from uh, but then made classified because the media is not allowed is not supposed to know about this. They're, they from the very beginning, even before the before Tiananmen Square even happened, they were already preparing the mythology, just like today. The trucker convoy was an insurrection of Nazis. They've prepared the the mythology even before there was a trucker's convoy. The same thing for the January 6th uh, events. You know, there there's historians from Chatham House deployed days after January 6th to try to paint the narrative for future historians to look back and interpret what happened on, on January 6th, 2020 as a, um, a civil war, an insurgency to take over the government violently by neo-Nazis and, uh, and Confederates. That's, that's the way it sort of goes. Yeah. Which is complete nonsense, complete nonsense, complete nonsense. It's all myth-making the actual, there was violence. There was violence. Um, however, that, that violence, if, one looks at the actual evidence of where it took place. There wasn't one, but two. So on the the main the main protest was, were two more than two months long. It began um, in the wake of the, the death of um, Hu Yaobang, who was the chair and general secretary of the Chinese Communist Party, a reformer who died. So originally it was a memorial of students getting together and memorializing his his uh, death in 1989 in April, April 15th. And then it was recognized that with all of these y- young bodies firmly in place, we can make these bodies move in a certain way, kind of like a mob, if, it, if they're given certain nudges and prompts and manipulation. So you had actual honest students who were there protesting for a better way. You know, there was inflation because of the the Milton Friedman reforms. Milton Friedman's uh, liberalized reforms were uh, going rampant, you know, as I, I I didn't mention this, but George Soros had been uh, providing scholarships to thousands of young talent from China to go and get indoctrinated in Western universities and redeployed back to become reformers, just like we had going on in Russia. And the effects of these reforms, just like they were, be, they would be felt later on in Russia, were a destruction of the stability of the Chinese currency. Uh, inflation was running amok. It was making it difficult to pay to, to live as a student or as a laborer. And then you had actual laborers on January 4th, who also about seven kilometers away from the Tiananmen Square, which is where the blue the blue circle is, is where you had a bunch of uh, laborers who also began to protest. Now, the laborers were much more infused with a lot of violent provocateurs, people who were armed with assault rifles, with thousands of Molotov cocktails. And we saw the same thing within the student body itself as well. But there weren't as many of those. So then you had the, so you had honest laborers you, and you had provocateurs, uh, other other agencies that were there to really create um, an uproar. For the most part, it was like I said cultivated by the CIA. And even in 1992, the Vancouver Sun um, had a, an article. You know, there's there's thousands of these citations. I'm just going through a few, where they acknowledge that the Central Intelligence Agency had sources among the Tiananmen Square protesters. And for months before the protests, the CIA had been helping student activists from the anti-government movement. Um, Some of the key figures, a lot of the key student um, leaders of Tiananmen Square were trained in Hong Kong, funded by people like Jimmy Lai of Apple Media, Apple Daily, who was a big backer of the uh, 2019 Hong Kong protests. Um, He was also one of the big backers back then of the Tiananmen Square protests and tr- provided a groundwork to train a bunch of these young people under a fellow named Colonel Robert Helvey, who is the, um, worked with Gene Sharp very closely um, at the Albert Einstein Institute and the CIA at Harvard. Uh, Helvey is somebody who, um, he was a, uh, an officer of the Defense Intelligence Agency at the Pentagon. He trained leaders of, of many protests, including Utpor in Serbia, uh, Kamare in Georgia in 2003, Pora in Ukraine in 2004, the Czechoslovakia Velvet Revolution um, of 1989, that uh, Helvey, Colonel Helvy was also on the grounds, and he's somebody who is very, very present in the build-up to the Tiananmen Square operation. That's an image of him on the upper, uh, right beside The Screaming Lady. Um, that's a book by Gene Sharp, uh, Dictatorship or to Democracy. It's been used in Iran, it's been used in Venezuela by the... Uh, 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 Guaido, any um, defunded democracy uh, groups in, in Venezuela that so far have failed, largely because China and Russia have intervened in a variety of ways to help um, Maduro stay in control. We've seen in Kazakhstan, we see it all across the Arab Spring. Um, we saw it everywhere. We saw it big time in, in, uh, in China. So on the right hand side is uh, Gene Sharp, and to the left of him is the poster for a film about Gene Sharp that's a useful film to watch. Uh, it's a it's a fluff piece called How to Start a Revolution. Meet the most important man you have never heard of. Um, on the bottom left-hand side is a the CIA or a, a, somebody who is a very high-level CIA officer working very closely with uh, George Bush Senior at the CIA, a, a skull and bones uh, man from Yale named James Lilly. At the time of Tiananmen Square, he had been and was the U.S. ambassador to China. And he was a major handler and coordinator of Tiananmen Square. Gene Sharp, like I said, was on the ground at Tiananmen for nine days. Uh, as was uh, Helvey, was based in in Hong Kong. All at the time, Hong Kong was still firmly under the control of the of British intelligence. It was still part of the the British. Um, actually, in in some ways, it, as I mentioned earlier with HSBC, it still is to a certain degree. But the control by by mainland China is much greater today over Hong Kong than it was even four years ago, and especially 30 years ago. Some figures that were there on the ground, pictures were taken of people like John Pomfret and Alan Pess- uh, Pessin. Um, one is a, uh, Pessin was a um, a figure who worked very high up with uh, Voice of America. Um, and uh, he was a Voice of America correspondent, always coordinating with the leaders of the Tiananmen Square uprising on the ground every day, John Pomfret. Uh, today he's with the washington post as a propagandist at the time he was with associated press again both of these people are always with the leading um shapers one of the other leading shapers of tiananmen square was a that's the self-professed student commander-in-chief is what she called herself um chai ling in 19 may 28th before january 4th she gives an interview with philip cunningham which can be watched online Um, there's a, there's a documentary called King Keys to the Heavenly Kingdom, um, a 1990s documentary, which is not bad. That actually showcases a big chunk of this, of this interview where she says, the students kept asking me, what should we do next? What can we accomplish? I felt so sad because how can I tell them that what we are actually hoping for is bloodshed? for the moment when the government has no choice but to brazenly butcher the people, i.e. the students. So that's the, they want that moment when they give the government no choice but to get violent. Only when the square is awash with blood will the people of China open their eyes. Only then will they be really reunited. Uh, united. But how can I explain this to my fellow students? I cannot say all this to my fellow students. I cannot tell them straight out that we must use our blood and our lives to call on the people to rise up. Of course, the students will be willing, but they are still such young children. She herself is a student. And what is truly sad is that some students and famous, well-educated people are working hard to help the government to prevent it from taking such measures. For the sake of their selfish interests and their private dealings, they are trying to cause our movement to collapse and get us out of the square before the government becomes so desperate that it has to that it takes action. Then, when Philip Cunningham asks her, "Well, uh, would you be willing to die uh, for this cause?" she actually says, without blinking an eye, "No, no, I am too important to die. <laughs> the, the movement <laughs> needs leadership." <laughs> um, it's always, always a test of somebody's character when you uh, when you hear somebody advocating overpopulation and the need to kill off, you know, uh, the excess useless eaters ask them if they're the first to volunteer for their yes. noble cause, and yeah, no. <laughs> um, the actual, up until really uh, May, late May 20, uh, 1989, the sorts of images one would see from the unarmed largely unarmed and these, these soldiers generally had like billy clubs at most riot gear at most at the worst of it which was acknowledged by the wikileaks cables um you tended to see a lot of just harmony there you had, mo- you had moments and videos of the the soldiers even singing with the youth um being given food by the youth um on the ground there's a lot of good negotiation like i said there's general harmony and, and when things really got violent and i'm going to show you some very disturbing pictures um, it's gonna get sick. There were deaths at Tiananmen Square. There were innocent deaths, but there was nowhere near the thousands we are told if anything um, estimates that I've seen that are that are using actual evidence instead of just making numbers up posit that maybe at Max a few hundred a few hundred um, civilians died along with a few hundred, two to three hundred uh, PLA soldiers. Um, I don't even know if that many civilians actually did die. I, I, this is just somebody, some, I mean, I'm not, it's very hard to find evidence, but certainly the numbers that we are being given are a lie. It got violent fast. And most of that violence was, like I said, seven kilometers away from Tiananmen square where we, where I mentioned earlier, I showed that image, the map, um, you have cases where we're not shown in Western media of protesters that lit the tanks on fire, that lit buses on fire these are, are uh pla uh, chinese buses with the chinese officials that were lit on fire in many cases with with the doors jammed up and then the people inside burnt to death that's a pla soldier who was strangled to death and lit on fire outside of one of the many buses many tanks that were brought in were all lit on fire. In some cases, the uh, the tank drivers were uh, sealed in and uh, burnt to death. Many trucks, many cars, hundreds uh, were uh, were lit on fire. Another picture of another uh, PLA soldier lit on fire and choked to death and more cases of PLA soldiers. These are two more um, hanging off the side of these trucks and then burnt alive. More case of PLA soldiers burnt alive. One hanging from a, an overpass on the right um, very, very disturbing. There's many more pictures like this, unfortunately. And I I it turns my stomach, but I, but it's important for people to make this, it makes it real for people. It's not just my words. This is a screenshot from uh, what's known openly as Operation Yellowbird, um, I think a racistly named operation coordinated by MI6, the CIA, and Hong Kong Triads, as it's titled there, How Tiananmen Activists Fled to Freedom Through Hong Kong. Um this is one thing covered by the China um, uh, Morning Post, the South China Morning Post. People can even go to uh, Operation Yellowbird on even Wikipedia if they want to get even the official story of what this was. And as I said, it was the cooperation with Hong Kong triads and leading MI6 and CIA operatives, to and also embassy staff around James Lilly to provide support and protection to the rat line, just like we had, uh, you know, Nazis from the, use the rat line after World War II, you know, and and, and installed in uh, positions of comfort in South America, advising governments running um, terror campaigns under Operation Gladio during the Cold War. The same sort of rat line happened. And this is what Gavin Newsom, a journalist with, I believe, the Washington Post, called the formation of a, of a foreign, of an anti-government protest movement in uh, as expats internationally, primarily based in New York, in Florida, and especially in Vancouver and Toronto, who were given sanctuary. The, 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 here we're talking about the leading violent um, controllers of the worst of that protest. And this includes also that girl, uh, Chai Ling, who was also, she escaped through Operation Yellowbird um, and received sanctuary, Ivy, Ivy League scholarships. And uh, I think to this very day, one would find if you look at the controllers of such synthetic cults as uh, Falun Gong, which whose whose uh, leader Li Hongji, has a 400-acre estate in New York, protected by the CIA, as the center of an international web of of operations, including cultural Epoch Times, as one branch of this, as far as a. Uh, Five Eyes managed uh, psychological warfare operation to create false narratives and confuse the hell out of people trying to make sense of how this conspiracy works. So um, I think you'd find many of those um, traders from the '80s uh, probably playing some big posi- playing in some positions of, of interest um, there. That's just for Amazing. people to think about. Yeah. One thing uh, from Wikipedia. Operation Yellowbird was a British Hong Kong-based operation to help the Chinese dissidents who participated in Tiananmen Square protests of 1989 to escape arrest by the Chinese government by facilitating their departure overseas via Hong Kong. Western intelligence agencies, such as Britain's Secret Secret Intelligence Service, MI6, and the US CIA were involved in the operations. Other contributors included politicians, celebrities, business people, and triad members from Hong Kong. Formerly, the Unlikely Alliance, Forming the unlikely alliance, which sustained the operation for most of its duration. One key figure who today is being used in a very virulent way as part of, I mean, I, I'm sure everyone's noticed an amplification of anti-Chinese, kind of like what we with the with the liberals were given under Donald Trump's uh the, the Trump years of RussiaGate, this this frenzied. Re-ampli- reamplification of a narrative that Russia has taken over and infiltrated our governments using their, their puppet Trump to undermine our democracy and, and give rise to white supremacist domestic terror movements run by the Kremlin um, sort of the, a lot of the, the conservatives have been profiled psychologically um, to, you know, because it's, 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 it's I find an, a vicious irony that they recognize the fraud of those Russiagate arguments, but at the same time, the exact same model was <clears throat> has been used and deployed, especially over the last few years, um, against China. Again, to get us to look away from the role of MI6, the city of London, the actual core of the oligarchy, which has been trying to destroy the United States and Russia and China, running an international deep state. People are told to look away from that and instead focus your fear and anger energy using controlled narratives and reframing a lot of Neuro linguistic programming is used for the reframing of narratives to make the boogeyman China um, police stations abroad and foreign interference in the Canadian elections and control of Joe Biden and blah 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 it goes on forever. So all that to say, Miles Guo is a character that you see there with uh, Steve Bannon. He's a multi billionaire, one of the richest men in China or was. He was in prison. He was one of the uh, key leaders of the of the student protest. Not even the student protest. He was actually one of the more <laughs> violent. Um, anyway, he's a provocateur, and he provided a lot of funding, a lot of financing, and directional and logistic support, um, along with uh, Jimmy Lai on the right-hand side, with Nancy Pelosi, um, who's now actually in prison, <laughs> who is the the primary money bags behind, as I mentioned, the the Hong Kong protests in uh, 2019 and 2015, and he was the a big uh, supporter and uh, backer of the 1989 uh, regime change effort. So. Um, Miles Guo went to prison for two years in uh, 1990. When he got out, there was still something very powerful and evil inside of China that had not been extracted, which began to help him reconstruct or construct a bit of an empire in real estate and investment banking. He became the representative of the um, J- a, a Chinese branch of J.P. Morgan in China in the 1990s, all the way up until his uh, his near arrest. He avoided arrest during Xi Jinping's anti-corruption crackdown, which which has been on, ongoing now for 10 years, he just narrowly avoided arrest because he had the protection of two key figures within the Chinese state security complex, um, who also went to jail, actually, and I'll say something about them, in 2015. And he made it straight to the United States with a letter of recommendation from Tony Blair, to uh, which allowed him to buy a $60 million penthouse suite in New York. And he began bankrolling things like Steve Bannon's war room. Um, Miles Guo also, uh, announced with Bannon on the anniversary of, uh, January 4th, the Tiananmen Square thing, um, the creation of what's known as the Federal State of New China in 2020 as a fake, um, new replacement state for China, which would be, of course, overseen by, uh, Miles Guo, um... And that would somehow coordinate an international body of expat Chinese and, you know, uh, hopefully they, they wanted to cultivate, you know, fifth columnists that were there. It's still in China to overthrow Xi Jinping and reinstall him as the sort of new Chilean um, Pinochet or Trotsky or however you want to call it, the new Zhao Jiang of China. That's sort of at least the ambition. Um <clears throat> On the right-hand side, like I said, you got people like not only Nancy Pelosi provoking a war with China and provoking separatism in Taiwan. She just went there not that long ago, uh, but figures in the neocon groupings around John Bolton are also doing the same thing. So it's it's not a left versus right thing. It's this is a this is what it is. I mentioned J.P. Morgan. So Connie Morgan did a broadcast in support of uh, the anniversary of uh, Tiananmen Square, and uh, in it it prov. Connie Morgan is the heiress to the J.P. Morgan fortune. That's Connie Morgan. Connie Morgan is a close supporter of the federal state of New China. And in this broadcast with Jimmy Lai, um, she goes through a defense of J.P. Morgan as the great patriotic uh, banking operation of America, who have been wrongfully slandered by haters who don't realize how how amazing J.P. Morgan is as a patriot movement. And uh, there you have Miles Guo recapitulating her remarks to the audience, saying, Mrs. Morgan has made it very clear there were no stakeholders from Morgan family in Federal Reserve, nor did they get involved with Deep State. So this is rumor. Morgan family is real patriots for America. That's Miles Guo. That's Epoch Times. <laughs> so... The other figures, you gotta keep in mind, so there has been, China has been working extra hard over the past 10 years to to do battle and extract the, the WEF, the World Economic Forum Managed Deep State. I mentioned Zhao Jiang was put under house arrest in the weeks after uh, the Tiananmen Four operation was put down. Uh, Chen Yixi, Zhao Jiang's right-hand man, co-ran a think tank with George Soros The, um, what's called the, um, fund for the reform, no, sorry, the Institute for Economic and Structural Reform of China. That's a Soros operation co-run by Chen Yi um, who was also, I believe he escaped through Operation Yellowbird, uh, to America where he later on, he more recently died. Um, you had thousands who were imprisoned. You had thousands who escaped. Uh, you had... The CIA opened several NED operations and front front offices in 1988 in preparation for this uh, this moment of regime change. Under the last 10-year administration of Xi, Xi Jinping, there has been such a crackdown. And Miles Guo would have it would would try to interpret the events of this crackdown as though Xi Jinping is the evil the evil representative of the CPC that's that's controlling Klaus Schwab and that runs George Soros that has overthrown the U.S. elections against Trump in 2020. And they're obviously trying to... That You have to live with a lot of self-contradictions and paradoxes if you believe this. But when you look at the people that have actually got to jail, we are talking about two controllers, two former handlers of this asshole. Ma Jian, vice, uh, vice minister of public security, kind of like the Chinese CIA, has been given life imprisonment um, in 2016. Uh, Zhou Yongkang, the official minister of, of public security from t- 2002 to 2007, another handler of Miles Guo, was given life imprisonment in 2016. Uh, Ling Ji Hua, chief of the sta- chief of staff of Hu Jintao, the former premier of China, was given life imprisonment in 2016. Sun Kai, the Politburo bureau member, was given life in 2018, all for very serious corruption charges. Uh, Fu Zhenghua, the former justice minister, was given life in prison in 2021. Meng Hongwei was given 13.5 years in prison. This is the former Interpol chief of China. Um, this is the deep state. These are the people who work with the Shanghai clique of billionaires that were brought up and created by Kissinger, Alvin Toffler, um, Zhao Jiang in the 80s and continue to have influence throughout the 90s to this very day. Um, this is the part you can't understand what the hell the Shanghai Shanghai lockdown was until you think on this level of how this was going to be the center of a new Hong Kong style color revolutionary uprising with the support of this deep state network of billionaires that had to be purged and cleansed, which happened under, during the course of the Shanghai lockdown. So what they're telling the the people, the plebs who don't really know much about what reality is versus the actual players who are fighting and making history happen are two different stories, okay? And that's something people have to sort of internalize um, because, you know, your average, you know, blue-collar Joe who has been to community college just doesn't have an awareness of the actual nature of these struggles throughout history. And that's really um, something important to hold in mind is that there is a fight to purge this deep state, which is why John Bolton complained in an interview to Bloomberg News saying that uh, it's no longer possible... Through China's authoritarian use of the of um, of um, social credit uh, programs, social credit policies, and the surveillance operation, they're not able to maintain their CIA operatives the the, the way that they were used to. Um, does it doesn't mean that social credit and these things are good. No, they're they're not good. It's just that there there's a, a need for like that's what confuses people when they look at the centralized nature of China's planned economy. They think that's evil because the. Evil people who want to create a dictatorship also want centralized planning in a controlled economy, except the difference is that the the ideological framework and the moral value system of the Klaus Schwab, Henry Kissinger death cultists is to create scarcity for a Malthusian population reduction scheme, whereas people who are also using central government power to do things like John F. Kennedy or Lincoln or Franklin Roosevelt or George Washington, I mean there's a lot of examples throughout history where power itself is like a neutral thing. It's the question of, do you have the moral intellectual value structure to use power to defend humanity against Mm -hmm. oligarchy, or do you want to use that power to enslave and kill, destroy people on behalf of oligarchy itself as a tool, right, a a knife or a fire can burn or cut for good or for bad, you know? So that's what government is. Government's like a technology. It's, It's central government is a very powerful technology. China has been very weak for the past fifty years, especially since the self-mutilation of the cultural cultural revolution, and before that, the century of humiliation. It was a it was one of the most wrecked countries under under foreign um, globalist influence, and they have not made the policies of the fourth industrial revolution. They didn't make any of the policies of the social credit system. They what has happened though has been they didn't make the one-child policy that came in that was forced into them by Kissinger and the Club of Rome. What's happened now is that they're 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 working, there's evidence that they're actually fighting back, creating abundance. Just look at the massive increase of standards of living. And this is what I always tell people is look at the actual what's being done in practical economic terms. China has pulled out a billion people from poverty in 20 years. Um, we have only created poverty under the IMF and World Bank. They've pulled that out, but they've also... Pulled. They they went from having three percent of their population living in the middle income bracket bracket in uh, 1999 to 56 percent today. Their in their their longevity has been consistently increasing year to year to the point that today there's 79.8 years of age on average for a Chinese life expectancy versus 76.2 years of age for Americans, which has been consciously collapsing. Um, one of the things is that when you're going into battle and i i look at this like kind of hand-to-hand combat occurring over je- decades is that if your enemy like think of a, playing a video game if if you're battling somebody in a in a, in a battling video in a, in a video game right and that that character you're battling all of a sudden generates a giant weapon that you don't have if you don't develop some form of symmetrical power to counteract it your your enemy is going to wipe you wipe you down now in the case that's that's a short video game you can see it in hand-to-hand combat or mixed martial arts you know if, if uh, you don't you don't tend to t- tend to see a new power occur in the course of of a, of a physical mixed martial art of karate game or a, a bout of karate that's not the case but in the case of nations fighting it's occurring over years and decades and longer and so if your enemy is coming at you with a new centralized power that they intend to use to destroy you if you don't generate some reciprocal response of, of a similar type of power you cannot defend yourself so I think that that's the way I tend to look at China's the, the things that are the most distasteful about China's governance uh, and economic policies, specifically the social credit stuff, is to look at it within the framework of this fight for global depopulation, how they've lifted the, the, the one population, uh, the one child policy. They, they lifted it to two, then three. Now it's at three. Soon it's going to be at, at nothing because um, they are trying to reheal, heal themselves from the self mutilation they did. So all, all that to say, and also peace, right? Like where empires always create divide to conquer forever wars, rivalries against between neighbors, look at whatever China has done in the Middle East. As soon as you get the United States military out of the Middle East, China goes in with diplomatic brilliance, creating peace policies between Saudi Arabia and Iran, and Iran and Turkey, and Turkey and Syria, and Syria and the whole you know Gulf region, which is now brought back into the Arab League, and same thing for Africa. So it's, it's just a very different paradigm of thinking about using a system, a top-down systems control, uh, systems management, but one based upon creative change, leaping over the limits to growth, creating more abundance, whereas the, the operating system of the Club of Rome that's shaping our world in the West is based on creating scarcity, getting us to adapt like animals to less and less and eating bugs and blah, blah, blah. So, so what you're telling me
1: is that – the Tiananmen Square massacre is essentially a product of Western propaganda, anti-China propaganda.
0: In effect, yes. Human beings are are funny creatures, right? And uh, and there's a bit of a. Um, we're, most most animals they just they they live according to the mandate of their genetics and environment and they just are what they are and that's fine and human beings are the creature that that generates ideas and and we're the creature that tells stories and and that's how we we sort of get a sense of meaning and causality which other animals my cat has no question about what does it mean to be a cat what's the purpose of being a cat it's just it's happy being what it is you know human beings have this other deeper yearning for the the beyond the mm. the eternal you know the higher truths the higher realities and so stories are an important part of that where we generate metaphors we 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 sh- we see with the mind's eye but the, it's tied also to feelings it's not just logic and it's a great power if if wielded with wisdom to I mean that's the way Jesus was able to organize so effectively is he was a storyteller you know and he mm. took very deep philosophical concepts but wrapped them in allegory and metaphor uh, using mustard seeds and and you know and was able to communicate something high impact that was true using something so simple. But then, if you have a dishonest um, misanthrope who becomes aware of this technology, this or not this technology, this 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 power, um, it could do a lot of damage, like we see with the CIA's control of so many of our Hollywood movies and Netflix uh, programming. It's it's predictive programming for the ninety nine percent of what we're being fed, right? Mm. Um, in order to shape our sense of what humanity is, what uh, the future is. I mean, there's all sorts of Trojan horses slipped into the, the scripts and stories funded by the CIA and, and, and MI6 in order to make us more docile, more um, detached from our true nature, more inclined to adapt like animals to unnatural, dystopic uh, future states. Instead of writing wrongs, we adapt to them. Or try to just look out for ourselves and some survival against zombies or something, which is the, the the worst way to think about moving into a crisis is everybody looking out for themselves, like many, which is the ethic for many of those those Netflix films, right? That, that yeah. showcase people trying to survive in a post apocalyptic world. There's no place for agopic love or moral value or, or solving mm. big problems the way Martin Luther King was doing. There's no place for that for the heart to grow.
1: Using very simple language, please summarize this conversation? Yeah. Um, in, 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 in just one paragraph or two.
0: A yeah. sound bite, if you will. Okay. Um, we are being weaponized against those countries who are doing the greatest battle against the oligarchy. And most of us who are good-hearted, want a good future for our friends and family and children and nations, we, because of certain facts of history, like Tiananmen Square, which we are ignorant of, we are going along with stories that are causing us to support wars against, again, those countries who are resisting the depopulation agenda, um, which we would be better off working with and organizing to collaborate with as partners against this common enemy, which is an embedded hereditary power structure that goes back to the days of Roman Babylon of inbred oligarchs who are sociopathic death cultists who want to restore global feudalism. the That's not China, it ain't Russia, it ain't Venezuela that's doing this. It's something else, it's supranational. And Tiananmen Square is a big, big lie that if we can overcome that and look at the fact that it was actually a regime change operation, not um, a peace protest or peace movement, but a regime change operation that failed we will have a better understanding of how China kicked out George Soros and how we could do the same. Okay.
1: So if those listening right now to this conversation want to go and get um, a great reference,
0: I'm guessing it's on your website. Yeah, people would be pretty good uh, to – I would recommend picking up the – the breaking free of anti-China psyops report It's about seventy-five pages. Um, there's going to be a part two coming out soon, but that's available on CanadianPatriot.org. And to get a sense of some of the backstory uh, that I mentioned regarding what is the Anglo-Venetian roots of the deep state, wh- wh- why why did I just say Venice? Uh, if you don't know how how Venice took over Britain, if you don't know that character, how the the leading families of the Roman Empire from the west Western Roman Empire took Took control or at least migrated to venice to to do what they did where afterwards they then took control of britain a few centuries later if you don't know that you don't really know the nature of the beast um so that's also in my books clash of the two americas volumes one to four and untold history of canada volumes one to four um again also on my canadianpatriot.org and my wife's new book too on the anglo-american roots of international fascism which she just published um really really sharp scary good read um, also available on my website. They want to go back to the failed agenda of 1930s when the British city of London hardcore roundtable movement leaders were were providing the support, along with some a lot of leading American industrialists like Jacob Schiff and and uh, Paul Warburg, Vor- um, the same people that had had brought in the Federal Reserve were the same uh, fascist oligarchists who were pro- propping up and causing the growth of the Japanese fascist war machine, which was supposed to be the power that would be controlled or handled by international financiers that would manage the Asian part of the world, especially China as a global as a slave colony in, in the Pacific. And that failed, just like you know the Germans were supposed to manage the slave colony of Russia. Under Hitler, um, and all the Japanese na- uh, fascists and the the Nazis, um, the were 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 all going to be localized managers of regional uh, the sort of a multipolar a fake multipolar system under a truly unipolar structure in London as a center command structure. That was supposed to be what World War Two was. supposed was supposed to play out as, or even World War II technically should not have happened under some scenarios. So they just want to bring that back. And that's why the Trilateral Commission was also created with David Rockefeller, the Trilateral Trilateral Commission representing three powers, uh, the United States, Western Europe, or the Anglo-American zone. Kissinger was knighted, keep in mind. The Anglo-American zone of control, which also includes the Commonwealth of Five Eyes, Western Europe, which is going to be sort of lower on the rung, and uh and japan and japan was the the supposed to be the dominant power controlling regionally the pacific zone of and china was supposed to be the slave colony so that's what they want to bring back that's what they wanted to bring back in the 80s they still want to bring that back that's what they brought into russia in the 90s that's what putin has been fighting against for the past 23 years uh, so
1: yeah how important in the next few
0: years in your opinion is BRICS? Oh, it's extremely important. It's um, it's become. It went from being a Goldman Sachs operation, which it was originally. People people often forget that it was created by a, a leading investment banker at Goldman Sachs, um, which was supposed to be by its original design simply a speculative basket case of the major economies that had to be torn down or undermined from within. That would be tied to um, Brazilian bioethanol speculative bubbles and, uh, and eat more easily manipulated. Um, BRICS, I think, come by around 2010, 2011, there was a bit more of a, um, a takeover of that of that platform by those who had a different idea of economic value and, which, and who saw the need to increase the productive powers of labor, which is why the BRICS, especially in the last 12 years, has moved from being a, a negligible part of the world economy to becoming now re- more, representing more, GDP more buying power even than by far than even the G7 in just in just the past you know 13 14 years so that is also causing because it's based on a different way of doing business a different philosophy of business and and foreign relations it's attracting a lot of nations i think now there's about 46 nations who have expressed interest to join up with that the BRICS development bank the new development bank also has members from bangladesh and iran and iran and uh, Turkey is joining up. Uh, Saudi Arabia is, is coming online. Many of the UAE, uh, many African states are waiting in line to jump on board South American states. So, I mean, for obvious reasons, they're actually building things in the real world that are creating abundance and a better way of life. Whereas in the West, under the IMF and World Bank, we see what, what damage they've done for 80 years and what they're committed to. So, yeah, BRICS is very important. Matt, how can I follow your work? Well, I mentioned the canadianpatriot.org is a really good website, especially by the books, but also daily updates. Um, There's matthewerritt.substack.com. That's something if people want to read my daily updates, uh, writing uh, videos, check that out. I'm currently engaged with uh, a few associates, uh, collaborators, my wife and Jason Dahl and a few others. We're making a, a series of short videos on breaking free of anti-China psyops. where are the first one's going to be released by tomorrow, uh, debunking the, the 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 mythology of the global police stations in New York and Canada and Europe that's been promoted by a, a national endowment for democracy front group front group called Safeguard Defenders. So we're going to break that down. Um, in the first video. Then we're going to have something on China election interference in Canada that we're also going to break down going into like, what is really CSIS? What is really the, the five eyes? what is What are these things that are producing these anonymous reports that were being fed by our mainstream media, which is also being funded by the very liberal government that they're currently saying, the liberal government government of Canada of Justin Trudeau, which they're saying is bought and paid for as a tool of the CPC. It's like, who are these... these these mainstream media patriots and these intelligence agency patriots who care so much about uh, big, bad China interference, do, are they really trustworthy? What's the sources? What are they using? So we're going to just dismantle these myths, uh, in these five to 20 minute videos. So that, that's something people can watch too. Lastly, I would say rising tide is our uh, more, my, my wife and I started that as a nonprofit to promote education, cross-cultural dialogue. So that's another fun website. Matt
1: Eret, thank you for joining me in the
0: mm. Trenches. Always a pleasure, Jeremy. Always a pleasure.
1: If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.